You are listening to the Visualizing War podcast. In each episode, we talk about representations of war in art, text, film, and music. With new guests each time, we look at how people have described or imagined war in different periods and places. And we discuss the impact which war stories have on us as individuals and societies. Hello, my name is Nicholas Vieter. And my name is Alice Koenig. And we co-direct the Visualizing War project at the University of St. Andrews. Today's podcast is the first in a two-part mini-series looking at how the Imperial War Museum in London helps visitors to understand, imagine and visualize war and conflict. We're going to be focusing today on its representation of World War I, and in a couple of weeks' time, we will turn our attention to the new World War II galleries, which open to the public on the 20th of October. With us today to give us some expert insights into the Imperial War Museum's representation of conflict are four guests, Sir Hugh Strawn, a well-known historian, also Professor of International Relations and one of the leading lights in the study of British military history, especially the First World War. Hugh chaired the Imperial War Museum's Academic Advisory Committee for its new First World War galleries back in 2014, and also the Commonwealth War Graves Commission's 2014-2018 committee, among many other high-profile roles. And then from the IWM, we also have James Taylor with us, Assistant Director for Narrative and Content, and one of the key designers of the World War I galleries. And also Vicky Hawkins and Kate Clements, who are curators who've been focusing particularly on the redesign of the new World War II galleries. And we'll be hearing again from them in a couple of weeks' time when we focus our attention on that. All four of them have been heavily involved in thinking about how the Imperial War Museum presents and updates its representation of a century of conflict. So we're really looking forward to asking them about this and discussing the role that museums play in shaping people's perceptions of war. So Hugh, James, Vicky and Kate, hello and welcome to the Visualising War podcast. Hello. 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 Great to be with you. So, Hugh, I wonder if we can start with you and perhaps recap a little bit on uh, the history of the Imperial War Museum. It's been helping the public visualise war for over a century. So I wonder if you can just sketch what the Imperial War Museum's aims are and what its ethos is. The aims and ethos have changed over a century. The museum was first opened in 1920. So when it opened, it was focused on one war only, uh, the First World War. And that was a war which just about every visitor to the museum had some personal contact okay. with and understanding of. Um, so there was a great deal that, that could be taken for granted. Uh, what was uh, new about it then, and I think is still reflected in the way in which it collects and thinks about war, was that in many respects, this was a bottom-up approach to collecting. Um, of course, people wanted in the museum objects that conveyed the big narrative, but it was about the participation of the whole of society. And that was reflected in the way in which collection was done, the collecting of personal artifacts, but personal memories as well. The other big point, I suppose, about 1920 is in the title. It was the Imperial War Museum. Uh, Britain went into the First World War with an empire, a, a crucial point when we come to think how we present the galleries today. Um, and it came out of it with an even bigger empire. So just as with the then Imperial War Graves Commission, which was set up near enough at the same time in, in, in 1917, part of the object here was to project that empire and the way in which it had come together 
uh, in the most significant European conflict of, uh, or indeed world conflict of recent times. So the imperial message was very important. As a century passes, then one of the problems, of course, is the context changes too. And self-evidently, there isn't a common understanding of the First World War uh, now in the way that there was then. And more importantly, I think for the museum, the empire isn't there anymore. And indeed, one of the stories the museum has to tell, uh, which it didn't anticipate in 1920, is precisely how and why that empire uh, disintegrated and the role of, of the two world wars, particularly the Second World War, in that process of disintegration. So you could argue that it's been extraordinarily significant that we've kept Imperial in the title. When I was a trustee of the museum, we actually debated whether or not there should be a change of name. And the conclusion was the brand recognition was far too important to us um, and we had to keep it. Uh, but as the museum now represents war overwhelmingly fought since 1945, if you think of the chronological span, we now have 70 years uh, since the end of the Second World War, there is a problem here which is readily identifiable. I mean, Britain isn't necessarily at the centre of all major wars, fortunately, uh, nor is it the leading power in any war that does take place in the way in which it was a leading power in 1914-18 or 1939 to 45. That's really fascinating, Hugh. And so would you say that today the Imperial War Museum still tells a distinctly British story about war, or is it very much more a global story now about war that it's telling? I think one of the challenges we've had to confront is precisely how to make it global without losing that connection with Britain and with the empire. It was comparatively easy when we tackled that problem in the First World War, it has proved much more difficult when we've looked at it for the Second World War, which you simply can't understand as a British story. It ceases to make sense for the conflicts after 1945, except possibly those of British colonial withdrawal, which the museum at the moment does not adequately represent, but which is the next challenge for the museum as it looks at its post-1945 galleries. So focusing on World War One now and the new World War One galleries, uh, James, I was wondering whether you could talk us through a little bit how the design of those galleries has changed, what changes you made, but also what were the significant messages that you wanted to convey with the design as it is now? How did you want to help people visualize World War One in particular? I think the first thing to say, we had two imperatives. The first one was that we had the First World War centenary in front of us. And obviously, you know, we needed to look at refreshing the existing galleries. And I'd like to build upon what Hugh has said about the audiences, because as he said, you know, all of the visitors to the IWM in the 1920s, in some sense, veterans, be that of the home front or indeed the fighting fronts. And so the way that the objects were displayed, and this was a form of display that went on until I would argue the 1980s, was that there were vast arrays of documents, weapons, uniforms. And, and the point was getting as much out on display as possible in order that there will be a degree of recognition among those visitors, so evoking their experiences. What that meant was that in the galleries that preceded the new First World War galleries, they relied upon this lingering understanding or even just a folk memory of the First World War, which really had long gone. And very often the museum had relied on its interpretation 
on what we affectionately call the grandma and grandpa guide. So, for example, my grandparents and parents lived through the Second World War and they would spin the stories around the objects um, as we went around the museum. That facility is not with us anymore. And indeed, when we finished the First World War galleries and they opened in 2014, there was not one surviving veteran of the First World War left. So um, the whole thing needed a complete refresh. And so we did some pre-evaluation as to what people who are nearly a century distant, our current visitors, wanted from First World War galleries. We established fairly quickly they were eager to learn more. And they told us we needed to answer four key questions. Why did the war begin? How did it continue? How did the Allies win? And what was the impact of that war? And as Hugh said, in accordance with IWM's remit, we set out to answer those questions from a British and Empire perspective, but at the same time, weaving in wider context, looking at the global conflict. So that, in essence, was what it did. And what we wanted to do was gently challenge some of the public understanding of the war. So it was things like, you know, for example, the Battle of the Somme is frequently imagined as a battle that just lasted one day. The First World War was fought entirely on the Western Front. The Home Front, if I look at the galleries that I mentioned, the predecessors to our existing First World War galleries, they hardly had anything on the Home Front. And so the way we designed the galleries was that on the exterior of the horseshoe, we told stories of the fighting fronts and on the interior, the home front. So there's this constant relationship between the two. And um, we established this very early on at our academic advisory board meetings. You cannot understand the First World War unless you understand that interplay. So this was the, basically the way in which we set out to reappraise what the most devastating conflict in Britain's history, to give it some shape, to give it a fresh perspective. We're talking about visualising war to make this a really powerful colourful story which deployed the objects in our collection to greatest effects. I would imagine just following up on this by broadening the perspective, yeah. what you're looking at, the geographical perspective, including the home front, including the eastern front and so on and so forth. That also means focusing on different people, different groups of people, obviously, because, you know, the, the people involved in the war on the home front were not the same people who were involved in the, the western front and so on and so forth, which in turn means new objects, different objects. So can you tell us a bit more about how things changed in, in that respect as well? Yes. One of the devices that we used throughout the galleries was something we call contemporaneity. And what we did was that, you know, this is a marked change from previous IWM practice. All of the letters and documents, for example, that you see in the galleries are of the time. We did not use, for example, quotations from memoirs and so on, where different kind of cultural phenomena might have influenced what the speaker is saying. So this was a kind of radical departure because we felt that the First World War meant four years of surprises and four years of shocks. And we wanted to reflect that. So we're not looking ahead to the eventual victory in 1918. I think another key thing is it's not so much the types of object we display. It's the way we talked about them. We give them very much a voice rather than showing them as relics. So, for example, when we're talking, we show the German Minenwerfer, an object of dread for many Allied troops, you know, who can see these huge packets of explosives coming over towards them, spinning in the air. And so what we did was put first person quotations by objects 
so that they would give them some kind of voice and explain you know why these things were important and emotionally as well as kind of just showing their technical capabilities and so on at, at the beginning of some of our conversations something like the 75 millimeter french gun we talk about quick firing artillery and how that gives rise to trench warfare as a sensible way of protecting your troops i mean as hugh has said this before i know in one of his books that trenches are always seen as an object of terror yet actually they're places of relative safety it's when you get out of them that your problems really start and if i come back to the way that we previously used to to caption objects i've got a great example that is we have a naval gun in the first world war galleries that had previously been captioned as 5.5 inch naval gun mark one but the key thing is not that it's a 5.5 inch naval gun mark one this was the gun from HMS Chester at which Jack Cornwell won his Victoria Cross. You know, a boy who became you know, a legend, even to my generation. And these are the kind of wider personal stories that we tried to bring into the new First World War galleries to give it perspective. Because what we do know is that visitors, people are interested in people. And it was really important to get those people's stories in and then to bring the wider context to them. Mm. I guess that takes us back to this question of the grandpa guides. You had the personal connections through the person who was talking about these things. Now these people are no longer available to do it. So this shifts towards the objects themselves. They have to kind of take on this role a little bit and be become the point of relation, rapport, so to speak, with the visitor. This is exactly right. And it, you know, it places, I have to say, perhaps more of a burden on I say a burden, it's a privilege as well um, to be able to give voice to these objects because, you know, they were actors and witnesses to the conflict that we're talking about. This is what makes visiting a museum so very, very different from sitting reading a book because there's not only do you have these, as I say, these actors and witnesses, the objects there, but you also have an interplay. It is not a kind of singular linear narrative that you're reading there's an interplay between those objects as well which is so hugely important to understanding it's really fascinating to hear you talking about this about the objects in this it actually connects with one of the podcast recordings we did a bit earlier in the season where we interviewed an author harry parker who's written a novel called anatomy of a soldier and each of the 45 chapters are narrated by an object and there's lots of interplay between the objects and what the objects do is they help the reader um, access the story from all sorts of different angles but from many personal angles so there's a bag of fertilizer alongside actually an ID so it's really interesting to see that use of objects crossing media one of the things that I was struck by when you were just talking there James was this emphasis on contemporaneity and yeah. the, the importance of not actually telling the story from the benefit of hindsight I think that's really key to yes. visualizing war as it unfolds really really interesting so that you're trying to visualize it the experience as people actually experienced a sort of lived reality rather than the sort of the reconstruction that academics are prone to do afterwards and all sorts of politicians and, and many other people and that's how the mythologized kind of builds up. James will put me right, but I think the creation of a, an academic advisory board was probably a, a new departure for the museum. Part of the reason for that was precisely the controversies which surround the First World yeah. War and the need to give both Dailies, the Director General, and also the trustees a sense of confidence that the interpretive line which we were taking was one which would stand up to scrutiny. And one of the more remarkable things about the advisory board was the degree of consensus 
that we managed to get into the narrative line, despite the fact that we were deliberately chosen because we had different perspectives, we had different things to bring to the to the discussion. And the discussions were great. And I think informative for everybody with the curatorial staff and the advisory academics all around the table together, uh, normally sort of full day meetings as we thrashed out these issues. And when I reported to the trustees that we were actually extraordinarily united in our interpretations of what we were saying, many of them pronounced complete scepticism. They said, how can you put a group of these in one room and expect them to agree? This It's a fix. It must be a... But it was true. We were agreed. And nobody ended up going to the wall for a particular position. In fact, exactly the opposite happened. The more we discussed, the more we found convergence. But having said that, I wouldn't want you to go away with the impression that therefore the result was bland. James has already talked about the need to challenge. And we recognised in this advisory committee, as indeed when we came to the Second World War galleries, that there was a need to bust myths. And I don't mean that for its own sake, but simply to recognise that there are stories that are too often told that actually don't bear up to academic scrutiny. I mean, remember, the First World War galleries, when they were first set up, were set up in an era when the archives were still closed. You know, when I began as a research student, in 1972, not that I was working on the First World War, but the the 30-year rule had only just come in. So the First World War papers were first opened from 1964 onwards, and then suddenly there was a rush, and because the 30-year rule came in, and then the Second World War papers were almost instantly available. So it took quite a long time for scholars to catch up with the First World War research based on primary archives, places like the Public Record Office, National Archives as it is now, to put that right. So getting at the truth was a recent exercise. And we felt that if you went through these galleries and did not come out with questions, did not come out without having a fresh understanding, at least of certain problems, even if you were well informed, then we haven't achieved what we were trying to do. I remember at the opening in 2014, I was talking to Max Hastings, and Max had just written his own book on 1914. And he said to me, golly, you're, you're putting it straight into it because you've got this headline with the numbers of Belgian and French civilians who were killed by the German army in 1914, the figures you know, of the order of 7,000. For a long time, that was believed to be a story concocted by British propaganda. But work by John Hall and Alan Kramer has, has convincingly shown that, that, that there were real atrocities committed by the German armies advanced in the West. And I said, well, Max, you know, it's true. And he said, I do. But it's still, when it comes over in that form, in a museum, effectively as a headline, then it hits you between the eyes. And I said, well, great. <laughs> you know, that's, you know, and if you come to this museum working on that, on that topic, aware of some of these issues, and you're struck, well, that's exactly what we hope yeah. to achieve. So just like those who come to be informed from scratch, and clearly that is your common denominator, the person who knows little or nothing about the war, those who come with some knowledge and come away further stimulated creates a sense of complacency, which probably is ill-advised, but but a sense that we had achieved what we were trying to set out to do. I wanted to add to something Hugh said, and it is about headlines and gently challenging some of the mythology around the conflict. I mentioned to Hugh only recently that there was something I wrote in those galleries. I'll quote, and it says, terrible as the losses were, there was no lost generation of young British men. 
88% of those who went off to fight came home. And then we qualify that about some towns and families paying a disproportionately high price. I mean, I said to Hugh at the time, I lost sleep over what the reaction might be to a statement as bold as that. And when we got the evaluation back, we do post-evaluation after large museum projects, it was picked up by a number of visitors who said, well, I never knew that. So it, it's that kind of thing that makes the work that we did with the Academic Advisory Board so very, very rewarding. Because that is, again, it was something we shared between the curators and the academics was having to hone down a hugely complex story into what essentially, when you look at the mainline text panels, they look like haikus. Um, they're very, very short, and you have to crush that information and deliver it as powerfully as you can, because this is not an audience that is sitting in an armchair or reading in bed. They're on their feet. You know, you've got them for maybe an hour and a half, two hours. You have to get over those points as quickly and as powerfully as you can. So we're building up a picture here of the museum doing incredibly important work in engaging with new research, articulating and establishing new truths, doing a certain amount of myth busting, and also putting questions and, and prompting visitors to go away with more questions. And you're also, Hugh and James, painting a picture of actually how complex that process is and what an incredible role curators play in this. So that brings me to Vicky and to Kate, because you've been doing this process very recently with the World War II galleries, which are going to open in a couple of weeks' time. And we've got a podcast on those as well coming out very soon. But I wonder if you can just talk us through. Vicky, let's start with you. What's the process of rethinking how you represent a historical conflict? Uh, we've heard a bit about the Academic Advisory Board. We know that academics feed into that. We've heard a bit about the role of the curator, but can you talk us through that process? Yeah, sure. So as we've discussed in quite a lot of detail, we really do begin by thinking of the kind of narrative that we want to tell. And a big part of that for the Second World War galleries was also what myths do we want to bust and what marginalised histories can we draw out and bring to the forefront of the narrative. And so those sort of first drafts came, were taken to our academic advisory board and we discussed the various ways that we could sort of inspire and engage our visitors to think differently about the Second World War. And some of our myths come from the fact that many of our visitors are familiar with a lot of the language around the Second World War and in, in newspapers and in the TV shows, you get a lot of sort of blitz spirits, iconography and, and thought brought to the forefront. And one of those especially is that in sort of 1940, after the fall of France, Britain stood alone against Nazi Germany, when actually, in fact, Britain had vast resources that it could call upon across the British Empire, from people to fight in its armies and work in its factories, to natural resources to build new weaponry, and the huge sums of money that were borrowed or donated. But it's also a chance for us to look at a little bit more critically at Britain's relationship to its empire and examine exploitation and coercion that took place as well. So, I think definitely focusing in on some of those sort of key myth-busting areas and places that we can be a bit more critical and engage visitors by asking them to or encouraging them to think about different perspectives is still really key. It's, it's sort of inspired by the, the way that the First World War galleries have done it to do so for the Second World War. But as well as a lot of uh, academic consultation and collaboration, for the Second World War galleries, we did a huge amount of public collaboration. And one of the biggest ways that we did that was through the formation of a, a people's forum, which was built up of local participants to encourage essentially intersectional debate about what would inform how we told a truly global narrative. And the people within those groups were able to help us to identify stories from people across the world who had experienced the conflict 
And throughout the design process, we kept coming back to the People's Forum to test our ideas and our text and our prototypes for the interactives. Because essentially, building galleries of this size is such a collaborative process and building relationships with these people have brought new audiences to the museum and contributed to a more sort of thought-provoking and challenging and sometimes experimental new narrative that sort of pushes the boundaries of what the museum has, has done before. We've really taken on board a lot of those pleas for the museum to be, to be more critical, to be more bold in the way that it addresses different elements of the narrative, especially the British Empire. And I think that once we've got that sort of key sense of the narrative down, we start to you know, do a big deep dive into our collections. James was saying, making sure that those objects that we're putting on display are really helping us to tell those stories is key for us as curators. But we realised that our collections in some areas, if we wanted to tell this much more global story, they were lacking. And so we started to collaborate with museums as well to look at loans from Australia and New Zealand. Japan, China and America and we also started to put out feelers and speak to people within those different countries about whether or not they had any individual personal stories as well and Kate and I have about 120 individual people stories from across the globe now that will be featuring in the Second World War galleries which is fantastic and alongside them there will also be some objects that we've had in IWM's collection for quite a long time but they maybe haven't been displayed before for a variety of different reasons including some absolutely wonderful Indian National Army pamphlets, which are, are written in, in Hindi and Bengali that encouraged Indian soldiers and civilians to fight against British rule by joining the Japanese. And they're really eye-catching and wonderful objects, but because they've never been translated before, they is one of the reasons why they haven't been displayed. So a lot of the process as well was going back to the IWM's collection and really searching through to find those hidden gems that we could put on display for the very first time. So that really builds on what Hugh was saying about the sort of the evolution of the IWM's history from 1920, telling a story that's increasingly complex, perhaps increasingly critical about Britain's empire and about all these different global experiences of conflicts that Britain's been part of. And I love this idea of the People's Forum, that the idea that the Imperial War Museum isn't just telling the story which it has established with its sort of bunch of academics and, and experts, but really building that story more collaboratively. Kate, do you want to come in here and tell us a bit more perhaps about how you've experienced the role and the responsibilities of being a curator, representing a very, very well-known war to a public? There is definitely pressure in that. I think, you know, as curators, I think we place the visitor at the heart of everything we've done, really, in creating these galleries, you know, from thinking through the design of the spaces to the objects on display, the style and the tone of the gallery text. You know, we had text workshops where we had, again, members of the public and visitors in to look at our text, to tell us what was right with it, what was wrong, etc. And, you know, things like we've been putting films together, big media pieces, thinking, you know, is the pacing right? Is the volume right? Is the wording right? And does everything we do, we're always thinking of visitors in the gallery spaces and how they're going to engage with these things. You know, we've ensured that that visitor experience has informed our approach to all of this. And, you know, we've had this ongoing process of visitor and stakeholder feedback, which has been pretty invaluable in our decision-making process. Yeah, as curators, there is a pressure, but I think, you know, the whole process of including the academic advisory board, which was invaluable, as well as, yeah, these public forums, all of it has fed into the final result. 
I'm just wondering, just following up on this question of the design of the World War II uh, galleries, James, when you redesigned the World War I galleries, did you find that you had to expand the range of objects and get in additional objects from outside? Or did you find that the museum already had such a rich diversity of objects that it was more a question of seeing what's there, yeah. taking stock and rethinking what had been done with them, bringing some new ones in that had been in the, in the magazines? Yes, and the museum's collection is vast. And I think there was just so much we could choose from. And so, yes, there were objects that we had displayed before. I was thinking in particular, you know, large objects. There's a SOP with Camel aircraft. There's a 9.2-inch howitzer. But there were other things as well that some of those smaller, more personal items that that might not have been displayed before. There was one, for example, I remember it's a letter from a, a nine-year-old boy in 1914 to Kitchener, who's basically saying, I can fight. You know, I, I'm, I think it's I'm good with a rifle or something like that, and I'm good on my bike. The thing I love, though, is that Kitchener gets somebody to write back to him. And this is in the, you know, in the first months of the war. So there's some really, really nice things. But where the IWM is lucky, we're quite a young museum. We're only just over 100 years old. Our collections all speak to each other. So we have three-dimensional objects, which could be weaponry, uniforms, little personal mementos, you name it. But we also have film, photographs, art, sound testimony. I mentioned documents. And so that helps you to pace things because there is nothing more off-putting for a visitor than just seeing rows and rows and rows of documents or rows and rows and rows of the same type of object. So you, it, it gives, gives one the opportunity, A, to tell a more rounded story around one object by using film that tells you about that object. An example would be the 9.2-inch howitzer, which we show being fired. We've got a, a sequence of film from the Battle of the Somme showing those weapons being fired. I mean, but there's other opportunities as well we have with digital presentation. So, for example, one of the presentations we do is on the recruitment posters from the early days of the First World War, British ones. And we use those um, on an audiovisual so that you can pick and choose different motivations. So there are some that appeal to patriotism. All the different motivations that are being appealed to, we can get loads and loads of posters rather than putting them on a wall, getting them into that interactive and allowing people to explore those themes. So that is another great advantage that we've had more recently that our museum predecessors did not necessarily have. It's more realistic. You could even say cognitively realistic in the sense that nobody at the time would ever have been confronted with all these different aspects no. of the war you know, at any one given moment. It was always a bit of a mix and match. And you saw this and that not everybody would have seen all the posters. So it's more realistic in a way in, in terms of the experience that you recreate with, with the objects. That's right. And I think there are some familiar objects in there. But I mean, for example, I'm thinking of there are three very famous photo photographs of the Third Battle of Ypres, better known as Passchendaele. Photographs too often for me are displayed in museums as illustration. We use those as objects in their own right. They're backlit, very, very large, very powerful, showing the dreadful conditions, you know, from that particular battle, which again, then help explain why the British Army suffered such a dip in morale after that particular engagement. 
before we talk in a bit more detail about the the World War One galleries as they sort of as as visitors experience them, one sort of follow up question to something you mentioned. You you've talked about the centenary commemorations a tiny bit, and I just wondered whether the advisory board obviously that was a great opportunity to refresh the World War One galleries, but did it also come with a certain amount of pressure? Did the centenary commemorations perhaps encourage a sort of a reverence maybe for World War One? Were there pressures that came with that connection, or did it feel very open and and a time in which exploring World War I was very much on the, on the table. The pressure was the pressure of the deadline, as the museum staff will absolutely reflect, because the galleries had to open on the centenary of the outbreak of the war, so there couldn't be any drift. And there were all sorts of problems in the building itself, which became evident as things began to be stripped away and wiring problems were revealed and so on which made it very, very tight indeed. The wider pressure, in a way, no, because the museum was fast out of the blocks. The museum had realised that the centenary was both an opportunity to which it had to respond and something on which it could lead. And both in my role as a trustee and as a Commonwealth War Graves Commissioner, I realised about 2011, 2012, that this was likely to be big, particularly speaking to European colleagues. Countries like France and within the former empire, Australia, uh, were very much on the front foot in planning for the centenary. And my worry was that the UK was behind the curve, which it was. And what I think was striking was the opportunity which the centenary provided because the pressure for the centenary did not come initially from government as a a pattern of government-led centenary commemorations, although that in large part was what it became. It came from bottom up. It came from communities, schools, churches, villages, towns. They were all planning something very much driven in the first instance by war memorials, which carries its own penalty because it did focus on that 12% who didn't come back rather than the 88% who did, to go back to James's point. But that was the departure point. And so, you know, in David Cameron's terms, because he was the prime minister at the time, it was a big society moment. This bubbled up from below. um, And only in 2012, in autumn 2012, did the government actually announce a programme and seize it and say, yes, we will behind it. And even then, when I sat down with Andrew Morrison, who was the prime minister's special advisor on the First World War centenary, we were talking about three big events, the outbreak of the war, the Battle of the Somme, and the end of the war. And the argument was, we'll do three big events, which we can do really well. Well, in reality, of course, it was much, much more than that. And the devolved administrations also did their own things uh, on top of what the UK was doing. And so the consequence was that the programme was almost end to end, 1914 to 1918, with at least one significant centenary event every year. So Gallipoli, for example, was going to be left to Australia and New Zealand. And actually, of course, the In total numbers, the British dead were far greater than the Australian New Zealand dead. Indeed, the French dead were greater than the Australian New Zealand dead, however important Gallipoli is in Australian New Zealand memory, so that there needed to be a UK event, which there was. So it grew, and it grew organically. And it was pressure because it was pressure continuously after the opening of the galleries. But from the point of view of the opening of the galleries, the opportunity was there. The museum was ready and the museum seized it. So, James, not all of our listeners have had the opportunity to visit IWM since 2014. And therefore, I wonder if you would be able just to talk us very quickly through what the visitor gets to see and learn. What story do these World War One galleries tell? And 
I suppose, whose stories do they tell? Well, you're testing me here, Alice, because it's, you know, as I said, these are large galleries. They've got in the region of 1,300 objects in them. If we start at the beginning, as, as Hugh said, we actually begin not in August 1914, as the previous galleries did, but we look really at conflict between empires or tensions between empires. A lot of that is done through audiovisual, so using motifs from contemporary maps. We then take visitors through to the July crisis, which is done almost like a kind of a news feed. And then we enter the war proper. And the first area, we called it shock. And it's really about how seven million men go off to war. And by the end of the year, a million of them are dead. We, we explore what motivated so many young men, particularly across Britain and the empire, to join the army. And indeed, how men, women and even children who couldn't fight looked for other ways to support the war effort in things as apparently as banal as kind of knitting socks as soldiers at the front. We then move on to looking at an area called Deadlock. We come back to the Western Front with soldiers digging trenches to protect them from the hails of shrapnel and bullets, which cost so many lives. And we have an array of objects here which show how each side tried to gain an advantage over their enemies. So trench mortars, grenades, knives, clubs. We've got a sniper's robe in there, mining equipment. And one of my favourite objects, a camouflage tree observer post. British Army set up its own camouflage unit inspired by the French. And it was the French artists who instructed the British how to set these up. Basically, a soldier would crawl up inside this replica tree in no man's land and then observe, because as you probably know, just even just the smallest height advantage, given that the Germans had largely taken the high ground, could give you some form of redress in terms of observation. We then show there's an area called World War, which shows how the suffering spreads across the globe. So to fighting at sea, to campaigns in Africa, Asia and the Middle East and taking in, of course, the disastrous Gallipoli landings. We show Italy entering the war on the Allied side, Serbia and Romania defeated and then the Russian Great Retreat in 1915. We then have an area again on that inside bit of the horseshoe I mentioned called Feeding the Front which looks at how the home front in Britain from 1915 is really ratcheted up with a network of factories built to step up uh, weapons production and concomitantly an army of men and women workers recruited. And we show how you know, this massive increase in arms production and supply translates onto the battlefield. And we have the only area where we really go into some detail about a battle, and it's the Somme, and an area we call Total War. And what we try to do there, as I mentioned earlier, obviously the mythology has it that there's 60,000 casualties on the first day. What we show is this battle grinding on over the next five months and showing not just the effect upon the Allies, particularly the British, in terms of casualties, but how the scale and the ferocity of the largely British attacks astounds the German army and pushes its leaders into decisions they might not otherwise have made. And then moving on, there's an area called At All Costs. We show in 1916 and 17 how total war on the Western Front meant total war on Britain's home front. We have in Ireland, Britain facing rebellion on its own streets, air raids and German U-boats threatening to starve Britain of food and supplies. And then we kind of take a step back. There's an area called Life at the Front, which answers all those questions that people tend to have about what it was like to be a British soldier. What did they eat? How did they entertain themselves? What did they believe? What did they fear? Um, what happened to those wounded or taken prisoner? And those banal things, you know, where did they go to the loo? It's all those kinds of things that we bring together in that one area. And as we turn the corner round the horseshoe, we've got an area called Machines Against Men, 
which looks at the kind of technological and tactical advances made by the Allies on the Western Front in 1917. Advances, though, which still don't lead to that ultimate victory. And I mentioned the three photographs of the conditions at the Third Battle of Ypres, and we display those here. We move on to an area called Breaking Down, in which visitors see the terrible strains which soldiers and civilians endured after three years of war. Strains which lead to revolution in Russia, mutiny, desertion and defeat for the armies of France, Italy and Turkey. And then an area that I don't think many of our visitors will be at all familiar with, and that's the kind of hunger that the Allied blockade, coupled with economic mismanagement, causes in Germany and Austria-Hungary. And we have some amazing objects in here. There's a loaf of the hated war bread in Germany, which you know, largely contains sawdust, and even paper clothing as well, because the Germans aren't able to get hold of cotton and wool. And we now reach a denouement with an area called Seizing Victory, which shows the dramatic final events of the war in 1918, largely conveyed through two powerful audiovisual displays which show how huge German offensives threatened defeat for the Allies, but then how the British Empire, French and US armies rally and defeat Germany. And finally, we have an area called War Without Ends, where we reflect upon the human cost of the war and some of the ways in which that changed people's lives. So from the rituals through which we remember war, such as memorials, to heightened sense of national identity in the countries of Britain's empire, we show how in continental Europe, wars still raged in the immediate post-war years. And as the decade of the 1920s come to a close, the times of turbulence seem to be over. And with the 10th anniversary of the end of the war, people reflect upon what that war had meant. It's a war that millions had risked their health and happiness to fight. And, you know, we end up essentially saying if that had indeed been the war to end war, then that terrible cost might have been justified. And then... That obviously is going to take us in to another world war, which um, Vicky, Kate and my colleague Paul, together with the academic advisors, have been working on. And this was one entry really interesting area, where to begin and where to end. And one of the areas where I think the previous First World War galleries had created an unfortunate impression was that they went straight from Versailles to Nazis. The, the 1920s were virtually expunged. Predecessor First World War galleries, if you like, had low significant pieces of artillery, which bearing in mind that this is the weapon that causes by far the largest number of casualties during the First World War seems very, very strange. It was the machine gun that took precedence in that. So it created its own mythology, if only because we physically couldn't get objects in. And this is what these new First World War galleries were able to address that kind of issue. That fantastic tour you've just given us shows how the galleries zoom in and zoom out and yep. look from different perspectives and visualise the wall from so many different angles. And it's really interesting to hear these headlines and then think about all the sort of objects that underline them. James just mentioned one of his favourite objects, which is this kind of camouflage observer post. So Hugh, do you have any sort of uh, favourite objects or bits of the gallery that you could tell us about? It's either the 9.2 inch howitzer or it's the Sopwith Camel. I mean, I think the big objects, because you're down below the Sopwith Camel, because you're absolutely adjacent to the 9.2 inch howitzer, their impact is extraordinary. I think the other thing that's worth saying, though, is that... The museum has an extraordinary collection of 20th century art, and particularly, of course, the, the results of the First World War commissions. And the challenge for us there was to show these in ways that honoured them as paintings, 
but also contributed to the narrative. I mean, and, and, and that we're still not doing justice to the museum's holdings in terms of 20th century art and, and art of the First World War. Uh, and that remains, I think, a concern for all of us that we still don't do justice to that. But there are points now where a painting makes an impact in its own right, even though it's very selective. And so I, 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 I think that integration of the different media, which, which is something James has already said, and the opportunities given by digitization, which of course weren't there for previous generations, and probably too, the stripping out of clutter. You, the temptation always there to put everything in so that the visitor can't discriminate between what's important and what's not, when one object well presented will say much more than 10 objects badly presented. I mean, that, you know, that, that those seem to me the, the, the sort of the, the important things in all this. And as a historian who's always been concerned by background of military historian, but very well aware that you can't tell the story of 20th century warfare in terms of the armed forces alone, I think our decision to have home front equal with the fighting on the battlefronts and to tell the story in parallel was crucially important in terms of conveying what this war meant and why it redefined war in terms, of course, which are now familiar to us. And, and what it does is that you really get a sense of change as the war goes on. I mean, you know, most of our tropes about this war uh, come from the problems of hindsight. You know, it's about death, it's about waste, it's about loss, it's about suffering, it's about those war memorials. And of course, none of that is preordained and how it turns out, and the twists and turns in the story, uh, with constant competition between the two sides, producing change in short order, comes through much more clearly when you don't prejudge. And of course, that's what we should be doing if we're to try to understand this war in its own terms. I, as a historian of the First World War, was very anxious that we should not begin the centenary at the end. It was always a danger that we would go straight to poppies. We did go straight to poppies in, in Britain, I'm afraid. And we went to the poppies at the Tower, which should have been in 2018 rather than 2014. But this exhibition does not do that. It takes you from the beginning to the end without prejudging that end. What you've just said there, Hugh, is so right and so important, that idea that we go straight to the poppies as our shorthand for visualising World War One, and, and what you've been saying about the way in which the World War One galleries in the IWM resist that resonates with something that we've been talking about on a different podcast. We interviewed a librettist and a composer who had put together a wonderful opera called Letters That You Will Not Get, Women's Voices from the Great War. And that too, because it's using real text, real letters, the words of real women as they experience the war over four years, get this sense of change, you get the hope mixed in with the fear, you get the joy and the celebration when things actually look like they're going well and you don't just get the lament and the retrospect um, and, and that again is, is really fascinating. Kate, I wonder if we can come to you at this point. Obviously, you've been focusing on the World War II galleries, but you know the World War I galleries. You work in the museum. Obviously, unfortunately, in the last 18 months, you haven't spent much physical time in there because of the pandemic. But I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about your response to the World War I galleries. What big questions do you think they raise for you about war itself, not just World War I? And what kind of inspiration did you take as a curator working on the World War II galleries from the World War I rooms? 
So I think that some of the big questions that the First World War Galleries raise, and which I would say that we have also had in mind when developing the Second World War Galleries, really been around issues surrounding total war, that sort of the all-encompassing nature of modern global war and the mobilisation of whole societies that it entails. And I think that's one of the big things that struck me about the First World War Galleries is how its large and complex narrative very effectively conveys how and why the war began, how it expanded its reach and how it drew in whole societies, because that hadn't really happened before on such a scale. And I think the First World War Galleries carefully explain how civilians were affected by the war and how more demands were made of them over time. These are, I think, some of the key questions that 21st century museum visitors would have about a conflict that happened over 100 years ago you know, outside of living memory, and which is almost impossible for people to have any point of reference to, you know, living through or participating in such a global total war is thankfully difficult for many of us now to comprehend. But I think that is something that we are able to do so well at IWM when we help visitors to visualise war, is not only providing that overarching context of the sort of the names, the dates, the places, the key events, etc. of the wars and showcasing some of the weapons, large and small, but also then giving that personal perspective of these conflicts through the objects, the words and stories of a really wide range of people who experienced them. And I was looking around the First World War Galleries just the other day, and it really struck me how many quotes from individuals feature in the displays. There's a really wide variety of people's voices. They're really clearly heard across the exhibition. So I think it's about making something that can be difficult to relate to, more understandable and human for our visitors. Those questions around how and why whole nations went to war and how those wars became total wars and drew in ever more sections of society as they wore on. I think that's one of the key similarities between the First and Second World War galleries and, and what, what I had in mind, certainly, when developing the Second World War galleries. Um, we were able to build on that concept of total war and embed that thinking into our interpretive approach. So we've woven into the narrative various elements of total war as we term them and these are kind of distinctive graphic panels at a number of points throughout the displays often with an accompanying object or objects and these total war case studies include the extensive mobilization of people in nations at war life under enemy occupation the practice of collaboration and resistance imprisonment bombing of civilians forced labor sexual violence separation and loss and each of these focuses on one particular example of an element of total war, whilst placing it within a broader context in order to underline the point that there was a commonality of experience for people across the globe. For example, we're including in the displays objects that show how people in different cities at different times had to shelter from air raids and respond to their aftermath. And that was a reality of wartime life that affected people in China, in Germany and here in Britain. So in making those links, we're underlining really to our visitors the nature of total war and how it impacted on so many people's lives and one other thing I think we've taken forward is we also followed the rule of contemporaneity that James mentioned following the First World War Gallery's example which really helped us to focus our object selections and it also does help to avoid the risk of inevitability that could creep in so again like in the First World War Gallery's any surprises or shocks that happen they do appear just like that you know the narrative takes visitors through the war and they encounter the events and the people and the stories as they happened.
that's really interesting to hear. And I suppose one of the things that I think has emerged from some of the comments that James made also about the link that has sort of evolved between the end of the World War One galleries and the start of the World War Two galleries is the sense that the Imperial War Museum is obviously telling the story of several very well-known historic conflicts that are distinctive in their own right. But at the same time, the, the Imperial War Museum is talking about war more generally and it's really helping visitors grapple with some universal aspects of conflict across the 20th 21st centuries but generally as well as narrating the stories of these very specific conflicts. So one thing that uh, Kate was saying there just a moment ago, I found quite interesting, this question of how do you get visitors to engage with the material? And it's a question that's come up also earlier in the podcast. So maybe I could ask you, Vicky, so what kinds of visitors do you get to the IWM uh, London today? And what kind of expectations or interests uh, do they come with? And what do you as curators want to give them? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, obviously, at the moment, um, COVID has impacted our visitor numbers, but on a normal year, we'd expect to see around maybe 1 million visitors to our London site and about 2.5 million across all, all five sites. Um, and our visitors, they really do come from all over the world, and they range from school groups, as we've talked about earlier, and veterans. And then there's people that are looking to understand the world we live in now and how contemporary conflict are often rooted in the past. And then there's also people who are looking for their own personal connection to the past, because essentially at its heart, IWM is, is not a military museum, as some people might perceive from the title, from the name, but it's actually a social history museum. So as curators, we are constantly emphasising how war has impacted the lives of people, and that is from the First World War to the current day. Um, and as for what they're, they're looking for when they walk in the doors, I think many of our visitors are actually... Um, looking to find or, or looking to see content that they are familiar with and they feel knowledgeable about to sort of reiterate their views and feelings of, uh, about whichever conflict, whichever gallery they're looking through, especially when it comes to some of our most popular galleries in the First World War and Second World War. Um, but as curators, I think it's fair to say that we've talked about it today quite a lot. We don't want to present one telling of history. We'd like to challenge our visitors to think critically and think about multiple perspectives. And we anticipate, especially when it comes to the Second World War galleries, for example, that the new, more, much more global narrative that we have created is potentially going to be quite surprising for some of our visitors and, and, and challenging. And that is partly because war in Asia and the Pacific or war in the Soviet Union have not really been taught in schools or depicted in film or referenced in the news quite as much as traditional British uh, perspectives of the Blitz or, or rationing or evacuation, for example. Um, and so what we've tried to do is try to find um, ways that you can connect those more familiar stories with, with the unfamiliar, potentially. And um, Total War, as Kate mentioned, is one of the ways that we do that by looking at case studies of how themes and patterns of conflict are present across different countries and, and, and nations. But also sometimes it can just be as simple as looking at how we can incorporate that global sense of history within every element of what we talk about and what we look at and not all of our content in the galleries is, is written object labels we also have some fantastic interactives and one that springs to mind because Hugh mentioned art earlier is that we've got a, a, a big easel in the second world war galleries that visitors will be able to explore how war artists were commissioned to depict various different scenes of conflict but also of home front and various emotions and Whereas usually we would potentially just present a British point of view, 
actually within this interactive, we have uh, official war art from Japan, from Germany, the Soviet Union, also Nigeria and Uganda. So it's a case of constantly sort of fitting this, this information in throughout and highlighting it to visitors as they go throughout the space so that they are constantly thinking or challenged or engaged. And for us, the best thing is for people to have those debates and have those conversations about whether or not this is what they expected to see in the museum or this is what they were looking for. You know, potentially they'll go away and they'll do a little bit more exploring of their own. Um, you know, even if you read every single object label in our new Second World War galleries, I think um, I'd be very impressed, first of all. It would probably take you a fair few hours to get round. You might need a chair or something, a cup of tea by the time you got to the end. But I think that, you know, even if you just picked up some elements or some highlights, that global story is, is throughout. It'll mean that our visitors will probably come away very thoughtful and very inquisitive, potentially, about the way that they think about history and, and what they expected to see at IWM. It seems to me that's really true also for the World War One gallery. So there seems to be really a nice coherence between the two galleries and the way in which they try to engage visitors and, and the public, which sort of makes me wonder, James, what has the public response to the new World War One galleries been? Uh, can you tell us a bit more about that? Yes, I can. We did some evaluation after the opening of the galleries and the response was very, very positive. I think the key thing for us as curators was that visitors were surprised and delighted by the range of objects on display and the stories they had to tell. And that even applied to visitors with more specialist knowledge. They praised the interpretation for being clear and accessible, which is somebody you know like me who prides themselves on the writing and collaborating with people over the writing meant an awful lot. Knowledge and understanding have been enhanced. This is what the report said, to the extent that some respondents reported feeling so saturated with information, they felt emotionally overwhelmed by the experience, which was quite interesting. And we found that people were taking as much as, you know, two and a half hours in the galleries. And Vicky said there, there's an awful lot to read. I mean, we tried to break it up as, in as far as we possibly could. But if you were to look into all the interactives and so on, you could spend half a day there. So, yes, I mean, the response was incredibly gratifying. I think the, the most gratifying thing for me was turning up on the first day that we opened, which was in July 2014, seems a very long time ago now and seeing huge, huge queues around the block. I hadn't seen anything like that since I went to the Colditz exhibition in the mid to late 1970s at IWM. I mean, it was an incredible sight to see the appetite. And, and I say that was the first day. That didn't drop off for months. And at one point, I think I'm right in saying we were kind of pegging the British Museum for visitor figures. So it was an incredible experience. And I think it's had a very long-term effect on the way that the museum goes about telling these complex stories. I mean, I know that Kate and Vicky have been talking about how they're building upon the First World War galleries for the Second World War galleries. I think that's been true of the Holocaust galleries, which are also opening in October 2021. I think it was a profound experience to create. And most rewardingly, it's been a profound experience for the visitors as well. And it's really fascinating to hear about those long queues. It speaks partly to the enduring interest that yeah. that people have in World War One, which has been fueled, of course, by the centenary commemorations. And I think that takes me back to you, Hugh, with another question. You've advised a number of museums internationally, actually, um, on representing World War One around the centenary. And I just wondered if you could say a bit more about um, how differently different countries or different museums have approached the representation of World War One in, in the last decade? 
Yes, I think each has done it very well, actually, in slightly different ways. The, the, this is going to be something of a Cook's tour. If I start in Australia, the Australian War, Memor- War Memorial, which was set very much in its ways with some dioramas, you know, things that we would not have now in the museum, done after the war, but very powerful for many Australians and for those who know the museum well, staggeringly has managed to retain them and yet put them in a new context. So actually, for those for whom this is a familiar and iconic museum in Canberra, and of course important because it is also the War Memorial, the best of the old is there with the new, and and they still tell a very powerful Australian story. The Musée de la Grande Guerre, which is a totally new museum, unlike the Imperial War Museum or the Australian War Memorial, formed around a private collection at Meaux, just outside Paris, has as its centre a battlefront. I mean, it it has two lines of trenches and artillery in it. But radiating in a hub of that are specific interpretations of aspects of the war. So it's a thematic approach. It's not trying to tell a narrative story as the IWM is. It's effectively a Western Front story. But you've got separate exhibitions on medicine, for example, at the front or uh, trench warfare or whatever. Um, And actually, in some ways, of course, that simplification of the story, which I think has been a particular feature of how France has responded, does actually enable you to produce a very coherent package. The new museum at Verdun is absolutely wonderful, but it does it by taking the battle itself in 1916 and telling that story which is a coherent story, but which captures so much. I have to say that I find in Flanders Fields, a museum which many British visitors know because they go to the Western Front and they go through Ypres or Ypres, they go to the museum. I find that less satisfactory because it is very much from the point of view of the experience of those who are on the battlefield, almost devoid of context. And I think one of the great strengths of the Imperial War Museum, and certainly what we were trying to do, was absolutely to understand that personal level of the experience of the war, but to have a top-down narrative so you could understand the context within which it is occurring. I think one of the challenges in In Flanders Fields is you're left with some uncertainty as to why these armies are knocking the living daylights out of each other in this particular part of Europe. You just know they are, but you don't know why. And then crossing the Atlantic, the National World War I Museum in Kansas City, which, like the Australian War Memorial, combines a memorial with a museum, and which, unlike the Australian War Memorial, struggles to put itself on the national map because Kansas City is now not the place to be if you want to get good visitor numbers. But that museum is really striking because it is truly international. It is not an attempt simply to portray the United States as part in this war. It's an attempt to explain the war into which the United States then comes. Each of these museums has something different to offer. Germany perhaps has had the biggest problem. The Deutsches Historisches Museum in Berlin has mounted two exhibitions on the First World War in my working life. And the one for 2014 had many very interesting objects within it, which were genuinely comparative. It had very striking loans, for example, from Russia, from the Artillery Museum in St. Petersburg. But I think it failed to hang together as an exhibition. And of course, it was only an exhibition. There isn't a museum. The the new Armed Forces Museum at Dresden, I'm afraid I haven't been to, so I haven't seen. But it itself, the Deutsches Historisches Museum, is simply deals with the war in the context of modern German history relatively briefly. So it's not doing it, making a concentrated effort in the way in which these other museums are. 
So one thing that's come out of the discussion is that the Imperial War Museum is not just about the two world wars. In fact, it's not just about wars uh, at all. And there's a story that's being told here that reaches into our time. So I suppose the question I have for uh, James, uh, Kate and Vicky is how do the galleries, the World War One and World War Two galleries, set up the visitor experience for the rest of the museum? And uh, how do they help visitors um, contextualize later 20th and 21st century conflicts? I think the first thing to say is that the museum is still in a state of flux, that the First World War galleries were simply the beginning of a large process of transformation, the second stage of which will be the Second World War and Holocaust galleries. We, we have 40 years of our remit, you know, so whatever we do subsequently, we'll need to build on what Vicky and Kate and our colleague Paul have done with the Second World War galleries. I think the key thing is we need to set up how the nature of conflict has changed over the century of the museum's existence. So, for example, we have had, we've got material on Afghanistan, on Iraq, on Libya. We need to build incrementally and look at how we tell those stories. And I think, in all honesty, a period of digestion is needed before we can deal with those conflicts in the same kind of way that we've dealt with the First and Second World War. Because I certainly think that the distance really, really helps. I know that my colleagues working on the Holocaust galleries, which will open at the same time as the Second World War galleries, I worked on the original Holocaust exhibition, the permanent Holocaust exhibition, which those galleries will succeed. It's really interesting how academic thought and academic consensus regarding the Holocaust has moved on. There are areas of knowledge which have moved on likewise incredibly since I was working in that subject area over 20 years ago. And I think this will be really, really interesting when we come to what we now consider but recent conflicts like Afghanistan. It'll be really interesting to see how we deal with those further down the line because any exhibition on the Second World War that we'd done, say, in the early 1950s is naturally going to be very, very different from what we do 50 years down the line. So there are unknowns there in terms of how we deal with these things. I would also add to that, we do have four other IWM branches where we can look at other areas. So, for example, we're looking at the moment at the future of IWM Duxford and, and re-envisaging how we use that site to display our objects, not least the, the many large objects that we have, because that is the only site that can take those. So there's an example there as well. As I say, museums, they're always changing and they're always changing because their audiences change, not just because we do. We have an open ended remit. So your last point there about the fact that our audience is always changing means that I hope that some of the work that Kate and I and Paul have done with the People's Forum and, you know, working a lot with a diversity of voice to make sure that we are constantly going back to our audiences and checking that the way that we talk about conflict and the way that we present history is yeah. what they are looking for and what they need. And it is a bit more of a collaborative process so that we are not just presenting the ideas and the narratives that we think that people should listen to or enjoy or be challenged by but also that they are part of that process and I think that in order to continue being relevant to our audiences we need to continue to have those conversations with them well I hope that they'll definitely feel that that has been a great impact and a, a great success of the second world war gallery spaces and I hope that as the museum goes forward and thinks about its more contemporary displays or exhibitions that that process will be continued to be used and utilized and will add to the success of the museum.
The only other thing I was I was thinking when you were asking about how the World War One and World War Two galleries sort of set up the visitor journey is what they provide really is a kind of a really good basis of context. And then our temporary displays, temporary exhibitions that we have at the IWM London site, they can then kind of dig down more into some of the subjects which are in those displays. And so they provide visitors really with a basis of understanding. And then you you can go off at any sort of tangent, really, um, you know, in our various displays, we have art exhibitions and photographs and smaller temporary displays. And we can sort of pick up some of those elements that that we kind of hint at or start to talk about and and dig down further into them. So constantly for our visitors, we're able to provide, you know, new and interesting different subjects and topics to be approached. You know, as we leave the second world war galleries, we've kind of left it on a dot, 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 because it starts to, to hint at what's to come. You know, the last image is a really big image of the mushroom cloud of the Soviet atomic bomb, right, at, right just at the end of our remit in 1949 of these galleries. And that you can pick up with the Cold War starting. So it hints at these things, which then the story will build on as visitors move through the building. Kate, what you've just said really comes back to that point we were talking about earlier, the way in which the World War I galleries and the World War II galleries refresh people's understanding of specific conflicts, but also get people thinking about conflict more generally. And as you say, then different exhibitions can spin out of that. I was struck, Vicky, actually by a phrase you used, um, what visitors need from the museum and I think that speaks to one of the initiatives which actually James has been heading up which is the IWM's most recent podcast the conflict of interest podcast which really is all about acknowledging the fact that war is a very very complex subject that people's understanding of individual wars is partial often limited that we don't understand and James you can talk us through this a bit more but I think what you do is you get famous guests to come along and say look I don't really understand the conflict in Syria can you talk us through it is that right? That's exactly it so I can't claim any credit here Alice because I basically do the voiceover but yes that's exactly the premise for them so we've looked at conflicts such as you know the Yugoslav wars, Northern Ireland, Yemen, Iraq, Libya. The premise is that we bring somebody in, a famous personality, and then we bring other experts in, as well as an IWM curator, who is an expert on that particular conflict. And then they have a dialogue, basically. They walk around the museum using objects as touchstones to talk about that conflict and what it means and to place it in context. So so that is the basic premise for that series. So we've just finished recording the first series, and there will be another series. It seems to have been very, very popular. So it seems to me we've already moved on and moved away quite a lot from World War One, World War Two, and that takes me to my next question to Hugh. So if we think even further into the future, Hugh, in 20, 30 years' time, when you know, other generations will rewrite the story of World War One, they will have their different questions, just like we have very different questions compared to the questions people had 30, 40, 50 years ago. Can you sort of make any guesses as to what uh, later generations might to might want to foreground how the discourse about World War One will evolve, because it's clearly something that still fascinates people. So there's a good reason to suppose that's going to continue. Yes, I think people have often asked me what has been the impact of the centenary in terms of our understanding of the war? How has it changed? The short answer to that is I think it's too early to say, because most academic research that was supported 
during the period of the centenary is only now just beginning to come out and it'll take more time before it's digested and has an impact. And there could be a sort of, I hope not, a road crash here because one of the beauties of the centenary at the time was that the First World War was being commemorated at a point where it was out from under the shadow of the Second World War, particularly in this country. I mean, Mm. in the United States, for Russia, for Germany, the Second World War looms far larger than the First World War and always will, partly, of course, because the consequences were even more disastrous for Germany than the First World War. And for the Soviet Union, the United States, the scale was vastly outstripped the scale of their experiences in the First World War however big they were for Russia. So if we look 20 years hence, we're in 1941 in terms of centenaries, Pearl Harbor, Barbarossa, I suspect the Second World War will come back in big time because we'll be marking in that centenary. And it will be just at the point where all the new work on the First World War, which has been going on recently, will want to be digested into the current First World War galleries And the museum won't be able to do everything at once, quite frankly. (laughs) It'll have to make some choices, and the choices will almost certainly favour the Second World War. Because by then, the Second World War will be definitively history. I mean, there are still some survivors of the Second World War around. They're still with us. As James said, that was not true 100 years after the First World War. uh, We were looking at, at something that had now definitely become history. When we get to 2041, Um, the Second World War will definitely be history. I mean, there may be one or two people who will have been alive in 1941, still going strong, but they will have been children. They won't have been taking part in this war and there will be no veterans to shape the narrative. And that really is the point about perspectives and how you get a perspective uh, on this war. And I think the challenge will be the same challenge as the one we confront now, which is we've elected to tell the First World War story however much we've made it global in terms of the British imperial experience as the core narrative. And I think that is the assumption that we made, which can most easily be challenged. And I think by 2041, when you've got a Second World War gallery, which is genuinely more global and which gives less priority to Britain than does the First World War gallery, and when you've had conflicts since 1945, which have seen Britain as much more a bit part player, however central Britain has been in many of those conflicts, the pressure will be on to go back to the First World War galleries and see those even more in a global context than we do at the moment. To tell the story, I suspect, from the point of view of multiple actors rather than just that of the British Empire. Not that it is that at the moment, but because we were aware of that problem. But I think the pressure will be even greater, especially because where will new scholarship throw out Uh, most new interpretations, in a nutshell, I would say the Ottoman Empire and Russia. There is more work to be done with regard to those two belligerents than there is for any other belligerent. And and therefore, I think that will, at least as far as scholars are concerned, force them to widen their horizons and engage with the, the consequences of that research. Really interesting to hear about the sort of incremental evolution of perspectives as more research is done, but as people are interested in different people's perspective, different chronological perspectives, different geographical perspectives and so on. And all of that then gradually, slowly shifting our habits of visualising World War One, World War Two, these iconic wars that feel so familiar to us in so many ways. 
James, I wonder if we can come to you for a final word, if you can just sum up what you hope visitors will take away from the World War One galleries as they stand now, and I suppose from Imperial War Museum London more broadly, in the way that it helps people visualise war and conflict. I suppose what I would like people to take away is, you know, as well as the immense scale of loss, is that the, the huge amount of human effort that went into prosecuting that conflict, the amount of ingenuity. That war was won, or from our side, by a British Empire army. It is not just a British army. And I really hope that people take that away with them. In terms of what IWM London does, as I said, you know, we've got the new Second World War galleries, we've got the new Holocaust galleries opening, so we've got the most marvellous kind of anchoring for our subject matter, as Kate was talking about earlier, that gives us an amazing springboard to be able to talk about in more detail some of the issues that wider themes about conflict can throw up. And I think that's hugely important. But I think what's important for us as museum curators, you know, and I'd say is to always engage in dialogue, just, just as Vicky was saying. And I think crucially for curators, we're always curious. We always want to learn and indeed to change. Um, but sometimes I go back to the First World War galleries and I think, oh, I'd love to change that word or love to change that object. It's not always that easy. It gets quite expensive changing graphics panels on a whim and then changing them back again. But just now and again, I get that, you know, and so, so there is that thing that I think that, you know, no gallery when you create it should sit there as if it's in mothballs. You should always be looking at what can we do with this thing that we've created. And to that end, certainly we've we've chosen new objects for the First World War galleries. I think we've had some marvellous acquisitions that we thought, yep, that's got to go in. And the same will happen, new Second World War galleries, the same will happen with the Holocaust galleries. And that's the way it should be. A museum should never be something that's just mothballed, where you create a gallery and that's it. And that, I would like to think, is one of the ethos of Imperial War Museums, is that we do constantly strive to reappraise everything we do in collaboration with our audiences and indeed with the academic community. And this is where the Academic Advisory Committee that Hugh chaired and is chairing for Second World War Galleries is so vitally important. Thank you very much, James. And thank you, Hugh, Vicky and Kate for coming on the show today. And it's, it's been a fascinating conversation. And uh, I certainly can't wait to book my ticket to travel down to London and uh, see both the World War I and the World War II galleries. So thank you very Please much for, for, yes. for coming on the show. We look yeah. forward to seeing you there. Exactly. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you also from me. And thanks very much to our listeners for joining us again. As we said at the beginning, this podcast is the first of a two-part series focusing on the IWM's representation of historic conflicts. And the second part, exploring the new World War II galleries with Vicky and Kate, and also looking at the new Holocaust galleries, will come out in a couple of weeks' time to coincide with the opening of those galleries on the 20th of October. So please do tune in for that. And in the meantime, you can join us again next week when we'll be gearing up to think about World War II with Professor Phillips O'Brien from the University of St Andrews. Phil is an expert on military strategy, so we'll be asking him about strategy making in World War II and in later conflicts, how people in the past have visualised strategy and then how strategy making is itself shaped by habits of visualising war. So please do join us for a conversation on another very interesting and important topic next week.
And if you would like to support our project, please share and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you use so you don't miss an episode. And please do leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts because that really helps people find the show. And if you would like to join the conversation further, you can follow us on social media, just search for Visualizing War or get in touch directly with us by emailing us at viswar at standrews.ac.uk. Our theme music was composed by Jonathan Young. The show was mixed by Zafia Girton. Thank you very much for listening.